Hello, I'm Mariette Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is three myths about aging that you can kiss goodbye. My guest is Dr. Hanneke van Seyo Edlen, counseling psychologist and accredited mediator from Johannesburg. Welcome, Hanneke. Morning, Mariette and listeners. Just to inform our listeners, after our conversation, Hanneke will give us her three best tips on positive aging. And then it will be fun question time. Aniki, I think the only people who look forward to growing older are children and teenagers. In most adults, the idea of aging triggers many insecurities. And you wrote a very informative book called Distilled Wisdom, A Guide to Positive Living and Aging, and you walk your talk. If I can just inform the listeners, you are a grandmother of six who is fully engaged in your relationships and in your work. You focus on a healthy lifestyle. Then there are your regular media appearances and workshops at several hobbies. And in short, you're one of the most energetic people I know. Thank you, Mariette. I must say it takes work because it doesn't just happen by itself. And this is the crux of the message that I want to get across today. The old paradigm of aging really does not apply anymore. But one has to know how to get out of that. Now, I want to refer you to a talk that we um, attended at at a conference some years ago. And in this talk, there was a visiting professor by the name of Linas Bilianskas, who spoke about the trajectory of aging. And in most people's experience, it was that after age 40, there's an inevitable decline, like a straight downward line that is very problematic. And it is that expectation that freaks people out about aging. And if one doesn't intervene in the aging process, That is the expected curve. So it's not for nothing that people think this. However, what Biliauskas showed is that where people actively intervene in the aging process, where they keep learning, where they keep exercising, where they keep their bodies healthy, that downward 45-degree line just does not exist anymore. In fact, he, he spoke about, and it's, it's quite an interesting new concept, the rectangularization of aging. So that line that we expected previously that would go downhill now can stay straight. In fact, for some people, there can be growth. We know that there's brain growth when one gets older. You grow in experience. And so what we're looking towards now is lifespan and health span where one stays on a really good and functional level for the longest possible time. And then obviously we all have to die. It's a, it's a fact of nature. But when that time eventually comes, it is a short, sharp decline and there isn't much faffing around that. It's like a switch off and there you go. Yes, someone once called it happy, healthy, dead. Yes, And that sounds like the rectangle. Yes, Yes, very much. 
Now today we're going to talk about three myths about aging. The first one is aging equals decline and leads to suffering and death, which you have just touched upon. Myth two is at some stage life will stagnate. And myth three, an old dog cannot learn new tricks. So, myth one, aging equals decline and leads to suffering and death. Right. As you've just said, we are programmed to associate growing older with inevitable decline in, from health and looks to mental acuity and productivity. And I think what underlies these fears is that we have no control over what happens. You have just said we do have control. We do, much more than we think. Now, in that sentence of mine, the thinking part is really where the crux lies. So I always say to people, you're going to get the old age that you think you're going to get. And that thinking is based on our beliefs and observations of people that we grew up with or that we had contact with. But I want to take it a step back. If one thinks that your brain is the major controller of your body, you can imagine the brain as the hardware of your computer. Then inside the computer, you need something to activate its workings. That would be your operating system. So I remember years ago, I still did my thesis in DOS. I think people don't even know what DOS is anymore. Nowadays, we have the Windows-based program. So that is more or less the subconscious that has a, a certain way of working. And then we have the individual programs within that that are set up for aging, for health, for so on. Now, if you imagine the computer, if it is programmed with, an, with outdated information, you're going to get horrible results. So what we need to do is we need to upgrade not only the programs, but also the information that goes in so that we get a better output. Now, in terms of the brain, most people used to think, and I still hear doctors who think that we were born with a certain number of brain cells and that's it. So you're lucky to have been born with many brain cells. And if you drink and smoke and live a bit wildly, you're going to deteriorate your brain dramatically and it'll probably not last as long as you do. And then you'll be the zombie-like being towards the end of your life. That's absolutely not so anymore. We know that new brain cells form all the time, but in order for those new brain cells to organize themselves into meaningful pathways in your brain, there's certain things that we have to do. So you have to think positively. You have to make it happen. You have to do proactive action on your own behalf. And then you need to exercise to activate those brain cells and you have to keep learning new things so that those brain cells can organize themselves into new pathways. Now, for the people who have heard me speak before, there's an example of this that I absolutely love. In a study that was written about by uh, Snowden, I think is David Snowden, the book's name is Aging with Grace. And they looked at nuns and what happened in their brains 
throughout their life. So they tracked these nuns from when they were youngsters to when they were really quite old. And these nuns donated their brains to medical research as an act of grace. So what they found, this one nun was very exciting. She was one of the most cognitively sharp people in the whole group. And right until her death in her mid-80s, she showed absolutely no cognitive decline. And then, as good scientists do, they, when she eventually died, nobody in the lab knew whose brain it was so that they weren't contaminated by their expectations of her. But they were amazed at how terribly deteriorated this brain was. Really? It was the smallest brain that they had seen in their lab. And when they dissected it, there were tangles and plaques that are associated with Alzheimer's like you can't believe. And then they had the difficulty of putting this hardware with her functioning. And what they reckon is because she was so active and kept learning and kept exercising and was very involved in her community, she was able to build new pathways around the deteriorated areas. The other thing that was also fascinating about her is that she had a double genetic influence for Alzheimer's. Now, normally when people have one of the APOE genes, it gives you a very good um, possibility of getting Alzheimer's. And until that time, they had never seen someone with two of those genes who had escaped Alzheimer's. So we know that our genes are not our destiny and that we can influence so much more. In fact, there's a whole field of epigenetics now where we look at people's behavior and that means what they think, what they do, what they eat, how they exercise. All those influences can switch certain genes on or keep them switched off because we all have that potential. It just depends which genes are activated or not. And certain behaviors can activate certain genes or keep them switched off. And that choice is in our hands. That's wonderful because it's based on science. It is, absolutely. So we can go ahead and believe that. Well, I always say to people, you don't have to believe it because it's not a religion, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In your book, Distilled Wisdom, you mention the important role of the subconscious. Could you please elaborate? Right, so the subconscious is the direction that we are going to go in. So all our traumas, our beliefs, our prejudice, ideas about how the world works, those go into that operating system and it influences the outcome of our behaviors. So for example, if one has a belief that old age is difficult, you're going to sort for things in your environment and attract those things that are going to underscore your beliefs. If you think that you're going to be lonely when you're an older person, people, the, the behavior supports that. We talk about a self-fulfilling prophecy where they keep looking for evidence that this is going to happen or there's a deliberate inaction 
And people, for example, who worried about being lonely will insist on staying alone in their own home. They will leave their family and friends and go and retire in a godforsaken place. And then eventually they'll say, see, I told you, aging is a lonely place. But they set it up. So we need to look and really examine our beliefs because that tells us which direction we're going to go. And if we don't like that direction, we can stop it. So the whole idea is to bring these unconscious processes into consciousness so that you can edit them and decide, is it good or is it not? Now, for example, the subconscious generalizes terribly. So if I had a grandfather who had Alzheimer's, I might think when I forget where my car keys are, oh my goodness, now I'm also going to get Alzheimer's. And so everything is going to be attributed to that and we're going to almost generate that scenario. Whereas if I think that children also forget, I, how many times did I leave my book at school or do my children forget their shoes at home or wherever at the sport field? Then it isn't such a disaster and we're not over-dramatizing and over-generalizing these things. One of the very big bugbears that I have in this area is what people find funny because we know that there are so many jokes about aging and in fact people need to be aware that when they laugh at those jokes or when they promote them or send them on via WhatsApp to their friends, they are underscoring those beliefs. So we need to be aware even at that level in, for example, children's books and how we, how we work with our grandchildren, the, in most of the fairy tales, the older adults are horrible people. They eat children. They're grumpy. They, they're nasty. They have low energy. They have low resources. Now, if one is fed that diet of incapacity from an early age, how can you not be like that when you're older? So we have to start with this awareness really early. And it's not, Oma and Opa said to be stupid. Oma and Opa are busy. They're working. They're exploring things. They're traveling. They're active. Those are the ideas that we need to promote so that the, the programming is good from the start and we don't have to undo 60 years of bad beliefs by the time that we get to retirement. If we retire. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I'd like, just like to add here that in your book you show us practical ways to look at our beliefs and change them. Well, basically, we need to look at, for example, things that we fear about aging. So if I fear, let me use the loneliness one again. If I fear loneliness, then that is my belief. If I look back at what happened in my family, I will remember Aunt so-and-so who was alone on the farm and all of those kind of things. So it's in our fears, in our attitudes towards other people, in the things that we dislike about older people that we can discover our assumptions. So I usually say to my clients, you have to put yourself on manual. You can't just do automatic behavior here. You have to really examine what underlies 
a fear or a belief or a certain reaction that you have to somebody. And then you have to unhook that thing and redecide and work it in. Now, you had the thing about old dogs and new tricks. Mm -hmm. What I need people to know is that many of our beliefs that we've grown up with, by the time that we're adults, those beliefs have many years head start on where we are now. So any new belief is going to feel like you're learning to drive a car for the first time. It's going to be awkward and uncomfortable. And we have to make an effort to work those new pathways in. If I may give you an example, a, a new neural pathway is formed like you would get a footpath through the felt when, when you walk there. If you walk only once through the felt, tomorrow when you look, the grass will have closed over again. But if you want that pathway to stay open, best you walk it a lot. And then you might even take the grass out and pave it so that it, so that it is much more permanent. And the same thing in our brain. We have to deliberately work and reinforce those negative pathways. And we can teach ourselves to be happy, to be positive. We just on the happiness story, we know that people, for example, have a negativity bias. It's much easier for us to look at what's negative and it has old survival value. But in the world where we want to move into, we want to get to a place of flourishing. There's no place for negativity. So we need to deliberately change our behavior from half empty to half full and make that conscious choice so that if we work this new pathway in and we really strengthen it, it at least has some weight of resistance when we're faced with a difficult situation. Now we're coming to physical decline. Um, there are many relevant insights in your book, but I'd like you to tell us how exercise can remodel the brain. Okay. So basically just to, to reiterate, the, the new brain cells that your brain makes all the time, they are activated by exercise. And then when we have a new learning they form a new pathway. So the exercise and the learning have to go together. But the exercise also has to keep us physically fit and able to move around. Because unless you can move around and seek out people and seek out new learning, that brain's going to deteriorate terribly. We also know that social contact and um, being with other people in a learning environment really helps things like depression because if you get depressed, the brain deteriorates even more. So we have to actively organize our lives to be busy, active and going. There's a wonderful story of some sea creature that only needs its brain while it's moving around. When it implants on a rock, it loses its brain. It actually uses its brain for food when it's there because it's now found its space and there it is. So the, the exercise and the brain are so intricately involved that the one can't do well without the other. That I never knew. 
And now we're coming to myth number two. At some stage, life will stagnate. Now, in your book, you talk about your grandparents whose lives more or less came to a halt when you were relatively young. <laughs> My grandfather sat on the stoop waiting for his death from his age 40. So I, again, that is a choice. But you can see how their assumption really kicked into place. Now here I need to just give you a, a fact or two. In Roman times, the average lifespan only was 42 years. People weren't expected to live much longer than that. There's a little saying that life was short, sharp, and brutal, and it really was. And so I often think that people don't know how to be older. And so we know how to be young. There's a lot of information around that. But very few of us, and particularly because we never really got to be that old, and there are very few role models in that way, that we, we just have no idea where to go and then we just get stuck in our ruts. But the thought of sitting on the stoop fidgeting until you die, to me, is worse than, worse than death. It's very true what you say about the role models. I, I do think our generation, well, I'm not that much younger than you are, but to me, it's wonderful to have people. I think... About 20 years ago, I looked around and didn't really find so many good role models for ageing. And that has changed in a very short time. It has. But, you know, in the 1950s, there were only about, in the, in the United States, 2,500 centenarians. They're expecting that by the year 2050, there'll be 250,000 lower end of the projection, and it could be as many as 4 million on the higher projection. Now, it comes from the fact that in the years 1946 to 64, that baby boomer generation created a massive population bulge, and all those people are now moving towards the aging area. There's never been such a population explosion since the the forthcoming or the, the, the generations after that lot are far smaller, but there's a massive population bulge at the moment. But these people are active and they're rebellious and they don't just accept the status quo. <laughs> and so it really is because of many of their searches that we are in such a better place now. But I just want to bring in something that I, I think is important to know. We can have a biological age that is up to 15 or more years younger than our chronological age. If you're healthy and fit and your weight is good and your blood vessels are clear and your blood sugar is well controlled, you can have the body of someone who is much younger than the chronological age. But the biological age is very much influenced by one's psychological age. There's a little question of how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? <laughs> and I, I think that people need to set themselves as much younger because the expectations of younger people are just so much different. 
In fact, that's exactly what Ellen Langer did. She's a fantastic researcher. She wrote a book that I'm in love with called Counterclockwise. But there's a study that she did on older men. They were in their 70s and 80s. And for a week, they had to behave and think and everything that they did had to reflect themselves 20 years younger than they were. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it was huge fun, but the results were astonishing. Even their biological markers had improved. They had better cholesterol, their eyesight improved, their blood pressure was better. It's just the not thinking and acting as if you're old. And so, again, the jokes, the um, I can't do this, the George Burns, one of my other role models, he says people start practicing to grunt when they get out of their chairs from about age 60 and they work themselves into this older place. I can remember when my children were born in the, in the nursing home, I looked at these women who were walking around as if they had been hit by cars. And I thought, you know, one can do that, but you can also pull yourself towards yourself and walk as if you're the young person that you are. And I think in the same thing with aging, when you get up, walk fast. One's body takes its cues from your body language. If you want to make someone depressed, let them sit hunched forward, look down, don't smile, and very soon they will feel depressed. If you want to feel better, lift yourself up, pull your shoulders back, lift your head, open your eyes, smile. So there are so many techniques. And so if one can manage your body to be younger, your head will follow. And if your head, it's like a cycle, your head tells you where you want to go, you make your body go, go there. And it doesn't mean that you have to be extremely fit. In fact, if we look at the longevity studies, for example, the one Harvard study was uh, intriguing. It's the, the longest longitudinal study that has ever been running. And those people were moderately fit. They did some exercise. They weren't fanatic about what they did. They ate well. They didn't abuse things. But I also think one has to enjoy life, for goodness sake. You can't be so pedantic about everything that you forget to live your life. Yeah, that would have the opposite effect. Absolutely. I mean, what's the point of living to 100 if there's no fun in yeah. it? Yeah. And the other thing I want to ask you about is one of our greatest fears, which is an abandonment. Now, you've mentioned loneliness. Mm. Would you like to talk about aging and loneliness? It's one of the biggest fears and self-fulfilling prophecies of aging. Now, remember, again, that subconscious of ours. In previous times, and maybe even now, if one is abandoned... It's very difficult to survive if you are pushed out of the group. But now I see, for example, when people retire, they go from here to Hermanus or wherever. They don't know a single soul there. To their subconscious, it feels like abandonment and it immediately puts them in a bad place. Now, if one knows that you have a fear of loneliness or of abandonment, 
get yourself to where there are people. So take yourself into one of the lifestyle villages where there are activities and people of your kind that you can communicate with. And don't sit in your own little place. Join the social club. Join the walking club. And for goodness sake, find younger friends, please. Because if we're going to live to be 100... We want people to be around when we yes. are there. <laughs> so collect younger friends and do meaningful activities. There's a wonderful thing that we call the social portfolio. Uh, one of the researchers, Gene Cohen, really developed that beautifully. But he talks about working on a social portfolio just as you would a financial portfolio. And so you have activities that are um, high energy with people, there are high energy on your own, there are low energy activities with people like playing cards or something like that, and then there are lower uh, energy activities that one does on one's own, where, for example, you write books or do things. And you need representation in all those categories so that if goodness but you need an operation on your foot or something like that, your whole social life doesn't implode and you can move seamlessly from one area to the other. And then the other thing that is really important, where there is attrition, where friends move away or where they go overseas or where people die around you, make a point of making new friends. It's those ideas that we can't make things. It's uh, those, I can't, I want to smack people when they, when they say that, because it usually means I won't or I don't feel like making the effort. There are very few I can'ts. And in fact, again, I want to refer you to the nun study. Some of those nuns who were over 100 years old, they still made a contribution to society. They, they were knitting little baby clothes for people in the community. You can knit squares for blankets if it's too difficult. The ones who really couldn't do anything prayed for people that they knew. There is always something that one can do. But we also know now that when one is active and when you make connection with people and when you help people, it releases and the hormone oxytocin in your system, that makes you feel good. And it's that connection hormone with other people, and they feel good. So by these deliberate positive actions, we can get our bodies and our situation really into a positive place. That's quite a mouthful. And I must say you, you include it in your book, the, the social portfolio, exactly how it works. It's yeah. such an important, especially for retirement. You know, we, we do a lot of <clears throat> retirement planning. And people kind of think that there's this amazing stress-free life out there. In fact, not having anything to do is more stressful than the things that you have to deal with. And so just while we're on that subject, take at least five years to dovetail into a new life. Don't create an abrupt rupture for for your old life to your to your new life. And we we say nowadays, for goodness sake, don't retire. Because 
one's whole identity depends on your work and what you what you do and unless you can replace that with something that is equally satisfying it's going to create such a gap in your life that's exactly what i was going to ask you um, because you often hear older people say that they feel useless so do you have specific things one can do to remain re relevant the best one is to stay working the the next one is to have a really good hobby and preferably something that you can monetize a bit. The other, though, is if one is financially relatively okay to do community service. There is something really amazing about helping people, about presenting yourself to a retirement facility, visiting people, doing shopping for them, whatever it is, to make yourself useful and to, to assist other people. It's one of the things around empty nest that is such an issue, is that suddenly I don't know what to do with myself because I'm so used to serving other people that I don't know now what to do. But if you're good with children and with ferrying, find other people who need that. So it's again, the, it's in our mind that we are stuck. It's not in reality that we are stuck. But... I always say to people, there's a very big difference between a positive attitude and positive behavior and wishful thinking. In wishful thinking, I kind of wish and hope, but don't get off the chair to do something. So we have to be proactive on our own behalf. Yes, it's just like you mentioned that forming new brain cells uh, exercise helps with that. Yes. So the, there is this potential, but you have to do something. Absolutely. And so I actually, I, because I'm a bit of a control freak, I like the fact that we can do things for ourselves and for our community and for our families. But it takes work. It really takes energy. But it is so rewarding when, you, when you've done something for somebody and they appreciate it. Even if they don't appreciate it, at least you can feel good for it. And that brings us to myth number three, an old dog cannot learn new tricks. <laughs> oh, well, I think with the, with the new brain cells keeping going and the new pathways going, we know now that old dogs can learn new tricks. But there are a few interesting little tidbits around that. And this is that it is easier to form a new pathway than it is to try to correct the uh, bad habit pathway. So find new positive ways and drop the old routines and old habits like a hot potato. You just ignore them. And you know that if you, if you leave a road unattended, soon the grass will be growing in it and it will start cracking up. So we need to decide deliberate new pathways. And I want to just get back to that positivity story. We know that when we deliberately emphasize positivity, we need a ratio of a minimum of three to one to feel good about ourselves and about relationships, positive to negative. 
But when we want to flourish, we have to look for five or more positives to every negative. Could you give an example of such a positive? Yes. So, for example, I will be really happy that I have the opportunity to chat and influence people. Um, I love the fact that there are flowers around me and they're absolutely beautiful. Or that even though it's cold, I have a snug jersey and it really is warm. So instead of thinking, oh, it's so cold, isn't it terrible? Isn't it wonderful? It's a change of season. Aren't the leaves beautiful outside? So it is focusing on what is good, what went well, what is right in the situation. And it is amazing how well that works in relationships. We ignore the things that are not okay and really emphasize the things that are positive and reward those. Because you know that behavior um, is rewarded by attention. So if we attend to negative things, that's what we're going to reward. And if we ignore the negative stuff and look for what's positive, then we we can get a, a better program going. And in fact, um, it's a little system that I call dog training. It, it works for husbands and children and, <laughs> and for dogs. But we, we really just emphasize the good stuff and ignore the other. And in fact, in this aging group, a lot of people get attention for sickness, which I think is terrible because we train hypochondriacs. So I'm not saying be heartless and don't attend to when someone is sick. But make a point of attending to them more so when they're well and happy, so that they don't have to be sick for attention. That's quite an insight. Yo, that is a trap like you can't believe. In your book, you mentioned that stress hampers performance and memory. I was going to ask which tricks you can teach us to manage stress. Right. It's one of those areas that is developing beautifully at the moment. There is so much new research. And we know that it is what we think about the situation that is going to make it difficult for us or not. So if we choose to think positively, if we choose to see the meaning in the situation rather than how difficult it is, it helps us a lot. The other is we need to calm our bodies down because unless we are in a calmer state, our bodies can't repair and um, feel better again. And the very easiest thing to do to calm your body down is just to breathe properly. So we use a minimum of about four counts in and six counts out. Because remember, if you are chased by some wild animal that wants to eat you, you're not going to breathe slowly. So you need to give your body a message that you can now, it can now calm down. And so in all the stress uh, control programs, breathing is the essential part of it. And in fact, it's why things like yoga and meditation and mindfulness and so on are so effective, is that a lot of it involves the breathing and getting back into your, into your body. But what you think about it and how you breathe are probably the two best ways of dealing with it. Yeah, and breathing is so easy because it's free and it's quick. 
Absolutely. You can excuse yourself and go out for five minutes and... Well, I mean, you're not going to stop breathing while you're sitting here with me. That's so true. Just, <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> now, I, was, but, I was thinking of deliberate breathing. Yeah. You know, like like you say, f- four counts in, six counts Yeah, out. but you just slow your breathing down. Even a few sighs out are just great. And I don't think anybody's going to... to think weirdly of you if you just breathe a bit more slowly so just catch yourself and center a bit and just slow your breathing down a little and that just calms your system there's amazing new stress work and perhaps we'll chat about it at some point but those techniques are essential just keep breathing and as old George Burns one of my favorite uh, positive ages, he, he used to say f- about walking, just put one foot in front of the other foot and then the one foot in front of that foot again and there you go, very soon you'll be walking. Mm. Now you've mentioned living in the moment, could you perhaps elaborate a little on that? Yes, it's one of the mainstays of mindfulness and in fact it's the only place where we can really live. The past is gone and the future isn't here yet. But people so worry about the past and about the future that they forget to be where they are. And so their whole life goes by and they've never had it. And so my motto is one day is now and this is the place that we want to be. So again, slow down. Take in what is around you. Really make contact with the person that you're talking with so that it is a full experience and you really get the most out of every moment. And if you go to the to the mindfulness work, John Kabat-Zinn is one of the biggest teachers in that area. He says that just be non-judgmental of where you are because it's one of those things specifically around aging that is so difficult. We think it ought not to be like this. It is what it is, and the sooner we accept that, the better. But in that acceptance, it doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. It's like Eckhart Tolle says, if your car gets stuck in the mud, it is what it is. And until you've accepted that situation, you're not going to get the car out. And by revving it more, you're just going to get yourself deeper into the dwang. So accept where it is and then calm down and look at what are your options. And if you have no other options, change your mind. And in fact, if one really wants to look at who handled stress well, uh, look at Viktor Frankl's work of them in the concentration camps. They had meaning and they were... Um, accepting of where they are and they helped their people as much as they could but they also just made peace with where they are at that point and it didn't mean they loved being where they were but they they held themselves um, in a meaningful place by thinking of uh, loved ones or by doing the best they could in that situation Um, so just accepting where you are Breathing and looking for alternatives, even if it is just to to be in your mind. One of the the little examples that I have is the the one woman said if she needs something positive to think about, she she thinks at least wrinkles don't hurt. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. And and to summarize, I think we back at the beginning where you talked about changing your mind. Absolutely. Your, your brain can change. Yes. Yes. And I always say, I'm a woman, I'm fickle. What's a mind if you can't change it? <laughs> and Hanike, what do you personally like about growing older? I think it's the fact that I care less about what people think. And I like the experience that I have. I used to say, I wish I knew then what I know now. But I know now what I know now. Mm. Now I'm going to use it. And we'll learn more and then we'll do that. And then you can tell us where we can learn more about your book and your workshops and other <coughs> tools, please. Now, this distilled wisdom that you're talking about is the ebook, and it is on Amazon. So you just type in distilled wisdom, and you'll see the picture. In fact, the little drawing on the on the front cover is of this little man who is moving from awful to okay to flourishing. Because that's what we really want. We want actively positive. And then I have a website, Dr. Haniki, where you'll find quite a lot of material. The, the reference to the book is there. In fact, the, the print version of the book was called Over the Moon. So not over the hill, but over the moon. But that the print is tricky nowadays. And so the upgraded version is Distilled Wisdom that is on, on Amazon. And your website? drhaneke.co.za Right. And I must say there, there are many, many things that one can find there. Lots of resources. And um, the other that I really want to encourage people to go to is my Pinterest page. It's also Dr. Haneke. In, in fact, there's not just one Pinterest page. There are many around practical spirituality and positive living and healthy recipes and so all the interesting things. Because to update a book is quite tricky, so the new stuff usually goes either onto the website or to, um, to the Pinterest page. But also on the website, we have workshops that we do from time to time. We've just finished a series of workshops but um, there is new material quite often. And then your three best tips on positive aging. Right. The director of the Harvard Longitudinal Study, Robert Waldinger, has such a beautiful saying. He says, take care of your brain and body as if you're going to use them for 100 years, because you just might. And then I think one needs to have fun. You really need to have things that make you want to get out of bed. And I would say, keep collecting wonderful people around you. Short and sweet. Yeah. Now, are you ready for your fun question? <laughs> yes, let's hear what you have in store for me. <laughs> now, I know you started painting at 50, and if I've got it right, you've had four successful exhibitions of your own. Indeed. <laughs> So if you think back to the movie Mary Poppins, which all of us, I think, in our generation saw, the previous one, I know they've re-filmed it, yeah. Mary and the children found themselves in one of Bert's paintings, one of his sidewalk paintings one day. So if yeah. you were able to enter and spend an afternoon in one of your paintings, which one would that be? It would be a still-by painting for sure. <laughs> I absolutely love the sea. And painting the sea is so fantastic for me. 
One of my favorite mediums is encaustic painting, painting with beeswax. And it makes the most beautiful sea and sky texture. So I definitely want to be in that one. But now I need to ask you a question yes, back. <laughs> if you could choose anybody's painting, which one would you want to be in? Sure. Okay. My daughter took art at school. Now she's a musician. She's not an artist. But she, in art class at school, she copied a painting by, I don't remember, his name is Gerard, but I don't remember if it's his name or his surname, but it was a, a Paris scene of the Sacre Coeur. Oh my and goodness. It hangs on, on one of the walls in our home, and that is where I would like to spend some time. Oh, beautiful. Do you speak French? I learned a little French at school, but I certainly wouldn't describe myself as someone who speaks French. But you'll get by, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you, Haniki, for your time. It was a pleasure. It, it was so inspirational, and I think in, at the stage of life where I am, that is exactly what I need to hear. Thank you, Maria. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, Mariette Sneeman, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9 